Hello and welcome to episode 17 of The Beethoven Files. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to focus on Beethoven's Piano Sonata No. 15 in D major, nicknamed the Pastoral Sonata, and take a briefer look at his so-called Storm String Quintet in C major, Opus 29. Beethoven's 15th Piano Sonata in D major, Opus 28, was composed in 1801, soon after his completion of the Opus 27 sonatas, and perhaps even overlapping somewhat with them. It is quite different than either of those two sonatas, both referred to as quasi una fantasia, although for very different reasons. It's a reasonably peaceful work, with enough rustic and pastoral gestures to justify its nickname, even if, as usual, it was the publisher's idea. We know that Beethoven was, at this point in his life, frequently burdened with anxieties, whether regarding his hearing loss, his serial romantic calamities, or any of a number of other things that might cause him to erupt violently. But there were apparently periods, or at least moments, characterized by a sense of satisfaction. In a much-quoted June 1801 letter to his old friend Franz Gerhard Wegler in Bonn, Beethoven stated, My compositions are earning me a lot of money, and I may say that I almost have more commissions than I can possibly satisfy. Furthermore, if I want to concern myself with such matters, I can find six, seven, or even more publishers for each work. They don't negotiate with me anymore. They pay what I ask. You can see that this is a fine situation. Some of Beethoven's communications with his publishers paint a slightly less rosy picture, but there's no question that Beethoven's piano sonatas were in demand. The D major sonata ended up being issued by several different publishers. So, does this sonata represent early Beethoven at his most content and least troubled? Attempting to align a composer's mood with the dynamics of a particular composition is a tenuous undertaking at best, but I think it can be said that this work does, in general, seem to be permeated with a sense of satisfied well-being. And this is clear right from the beginning of the first movement, in 3-4 time and marked allegro. The first thing we hear is the beginning of a series of repeated quarter notes on the tonic note of D played quietly and low in the piano's range. More than one commentator has compared these repeated notes to repeated timpani strokes, but whereas repeated timpani strokes, even quiet ones, may well be heard as a somewhat ominous sign, there's no indication of that here. If anything, these repeated notes, for 24 measures in a row, add to the rustic atmosphere since the effect they make is something like a pedal or drone. These repeated notes are initially heard at the bottom of the texture, but later, when they move up an octave, they sometimes appear above the bass line. Here are the first 20 measures. The melody begins on A, the fifth of the D major scale, harmonized actually by a secondary dominant seventh chord, which immediately pushes us toward G major, briefly ornamented with a struck suspension. But then the melody moves back down the scale 
for an entire octave in a series of lilting rhythms, and then halfway back up again in the last four measures. Four measures which, by the way, play a particularly important role in the development section. Then, as you heard, Beethoven repeats the whole first ten measures again, now up an octave. We then hear what appears at first glance to be the beginning of a modulatory transition. After a two-measure lead-in, with a new bass line below the repeated Ds, moving primarily in sixths with the upper voice, we hear, introduced with a brief crescendo in the first sforzando accent of the movement, a passage that seems like a varied restatement of the first subject, one we suspect will break away from the first subject and begin a modulation to a new key for the second subject. Here's the new section. The second eight bars basically recreate the first eight an octave higher, and then add a little extra cadential tag on the end. You definitely heard some of the motives from the first subject, but you also heard some new, sprightly, arpeggio-based ideas as well in the last two bars of the first eight-measure statement. The thing is, when this section, 19 measures long, seems to come to a close, we're still in the original tonic key, D major. We haven't modulated. So ultimately, we're more likely to think of this simply as a varied restatement of the original theme. What comes next does qualify as the modulatory transition. We hear some new motives, including one based on repeated, very distinctive across-the-bar suspensions, and others consisting mostly of swirling lines of eighth notes. This time, we definitely seem to be moving toward A major, the key of the dominant. The transition ends with a decrescendo to a sustained E, which at this point we probably hear is the root of a dominant chord in A major, and which we expect to resolve to A. But it doesn't. The E is moved up a half-step to E-sharp, the leading tone and part of a dominant chord in F-sharp minor. And within just two measures, it's very clear that F-sharp minor is our modulatory goal, and that is where the second subject is going to begin. It's not exactly a typical second subject. The texture changes dramatically with block chords unfolding slowly in the right hand against staccato quarter notes on beats two and three in the left hand. The eight-measure melody, supported by the dotted half-note chords, gradually moves up the scale and picks up some rhythmic momentum in the last three measures, as it includes quarter notes and eighth notes into the mix. The first six bars of the theme repeat in varied form, and then Beethoven cuts it off and introduces a new idea, a slowly unfolding melody in half notes and quarter notes over an Alberti bass pattern, the melody relying heavily on lower neighbor tones and upper neighbor tones, often harmonizing with the bass line in tenths. After 27 measures, 
The music has modulated to A major and cadences there, the key we expected all along. It takes the melody quite a while to develop any real sense of direction, and it could be considered a bit diffuse. But for better or worse, it probably has to be considered the second subject, although not all commentators have labeled it as such. But of course, Beethoven is not obligated to make all of his themes either succinct or obviously tuneful. Here's what it sounds like, 40 measures in length, with a much more florid little four-bar linking passage at the end. So the second subject may have begun in F-sharp minor, but it concluded in A major, the normal key for a second subject, and this is just the kind of thing we've seen before. The measures following my excerpt basically consist of a variant of what you just heard, but now clearly ensconced in A major. Then we hear a repeat of that little four-measure link. After that, we hear a new, much more delicate theme, marked by staccato quarter notes and across the bar ties, which link us back to the opening motive of the modulatory transition, and takes us to the end of the exposition like a proper little codetta. The exposition is for the most part a rather serene affair, but the development section is somewhat different. It begins quietly enough by referencing the first subject in G major, with the left hand again supplying the repeated quarter note timpani strokes beneath the melody. The key changes quickly to C minor and then G minor as the left hand drops the repeated quarter notes, replacing them with a series of cascading scale lines in eighth notes. Beethoven is not through with the first subject in the right hand yet, but now he hones in on its final four measures, which he repeats five times, eventually shifted to the left hand as we modulate to D minor. Now he focuses on just the last two measures of the subject, played in thirds as they were originally. Then, as we approach A minor, he concentrates on just the three-note motive from the second-to-last measure of that theme, playing it again and again, punctuated with sforzando accents as we continue to modulate. Here is the development section through its tension-filled climax.
As you heard at the end of my excerpt, the sense of dramatic urgency does fade as Beethoven moves away from the repetition of the three-note motive and toward a series of full chords sustained over the bar line which direct us toward B major. After a fermata, we do arrive at B major, where we hear a reminiscence of the motive from the modulatory transition. But it's short-lived, and after just four bars and another fermata, we hear the same phrase now in B minor and fading away to nothingness. One final reference to the transition phrase pushes us back to D major, where a fourth fermata suspends a dominant seventh chord in that key. This soft and rather delicate passage, after all the turmoil of the development section, is quite effective in recalibrating our ears for the return of the quieter, more pastoral first subject. The recapitulation carries on in a generally predictable way, everything eventually arriving in the original tonic key of D major. There is a coda, but it's a brief and rather modest one that leaves us with a final memory of the pastoral innocence of the first subject rather than the more problematic second subject or drama-filled development section. But we're going to move on now to the next movement, a slow movement marked on Dante in 2-4 time and in D minor. It's in three distinct sections, with the first two consisting of two repeated parts. The theme presented in the first part of the first section is solemn enough, almost march-like initially, although the staccato 16th note accompaniment, frequently unfolding in octave leaps, modifies the mood somewhat. After a little dynamic surge, the first four-bar phrase ends on the dominant chord. But there's only a limited sense of repose here, since the left-hand bass line almost immediately moves down by step to add the seventh of the chord, and we're soon on the move again. We might well expect to return to a tonic D minor chord at this point, but Beethoven substitutes an F major chord, and now a variant of the opening melodic idea returns in F major. Well, at least the first two bars of it. An unexpected diminished seventh chord on the last beat of the second bar of the phrase actually pushes us in the direction of A minor, and that's where the first section comes to rest. Although the rather ominous-sounding bass line, now doubled briefly by the right hand an octave higher, tosses in a C-sharp at the last second to propel us back to D minor for the repeat. The second part of the first section is a little longer at 14 bars. The first eight of these are taken up with what is basically a prolongation of the dominant chord. The left hand repeats the root of the dominant chord, A, in 16th notes for the first six of those measures, reinvoking the repeated notes of the first movement. Melodically, the first six bars are made up of short motives doubled in thirds which hover in the upper reaches of the dominant seventh chord. But there are also brief, syncopated, dissonant chords, diminished chords, 
sprinkled in on weak beats, and accented to keep things from getting too predictable. The last six bars of this section provide a varied repeat of the thematic idea that opened the first part of the movement. The middle section of the movement presents a strong contrast with its switch to D major and distinctive new dotted 16th 32nd note chordal rhythmic motives, played staccato, alternating with staccato arpeggios and scale fragments. It is, in fact, rather coquettish, almost the exact opposite of solemn. Most of it is very quiet, but there is an unexpected jump up to forte in measure 6, although the music returns quickly almost apologetically, back down to piano in the next measure. Here's the first eight-measure section, ending on the dominant, which is repeated, although not in my excerpt. The second half, eight measures like the first, repeats the same initial ideas for the first two bars, alternating forte and piano every half a measure. But it then introduces some new cascading legato triplets in the right hand, against which the left hand contributes a flowing, chromatically ascending melodic fragment in eighth notes, resulting in a brief quickening of the harmonic rhythm and providing a bit of contrast. The last four bars are a near repeat of the last four in the first part, adjusted for the conclusion on D major. The third section, back in D minor, brings back many of the thematic ideas from the first section intact. The first eight measures are a duplicate of the first eight of the first section, and even the next eight reproduce the staccato octaves and harmonic progression of the left-hand part. The right hand is different. The original melody has been replaced by an expressive flow of legato 32nd notes, which undulates gently over the staccato bass line, incorporating frequent accented non-harmonic tones along the way. Here's the second eight measures of the third section.
Beethoven then duplicates the second part of the first section, but only the first 16 bars. Instead of repeating the remainder, he produces another variant marked by swirling 32nd notes in the right hand, and very briefly in the left as well. I'm not sure you could describe what Beethoven has done here as transformative, although the decorative 32nd note scale passages may rob the original melody of some of its solemnity. Not surprisingly, Beethoven brings back his original theme one more time in a coda, but he soon interrupts it, first with a couple of fermatas, and then with the return of those jauntier staccato motives from the middle section. So, is there a final resounding message we can relate to? Was the solemnity of the opening theme, almost a slow funeral march, only an ironic gesture, a temporary posturing? We may have to look at the final two movements before we can be confident about the meaning of this one. Movement three is a scherzo in D major, three-four time, and marked allegro vivace. It embodies high spirits and glibness in equal parts. Beethoven's economy of means in this movement is impressive. There are really only two ideas, dotted half notes negotiating octave drops, sometimes in single notes, sometimes harmonized in thirds, and a brief little motive of two-eighths and a quarter, which descends a triad. Here's the first part of the scherzo. The second part of the scherzo adds a little melodic activity to the dropping octaves motive in the first part, now shifted to the left hand. The pattern slowly begins to ascend until, over the course of 16 bars, it's moved up from F-sharp to C-sharp, then, after a fermata, a variant of the opening eight bars of the first part is introduced, and, after that, we encounter something of a dramatic climax as the earlier thirds have now been bolstered to full fortissimo triads. The descending three-note triad figure then carries us to the end of the scherzo section. The trio is very brief, eight measures only, although repeated, but it does offer a bit of melodic contrast in the form of a new melodic idea, the first four-bar phrase starting in B minor, the relative minor key, and descending quickly from the fifth scale degree down to the tonic, adorned by a grace note and multiple staccato markings. Meanwhile, the leaping octaves moving gradually up the scale in the left hand naturally remind us of the second movement accompaniment pattern to the solemn march, a march which is feeling more and more like an ironic gesture every minute. But back to the trio. The second phrase is a varied repeat that makes its way to the original tonic of D major. After those eight bars are repeated, the second section of the trio presents largely the same melody, but now with the left-hand pattern switched to a more legato broken chord pattern, 
and reharmonize to begin in D major but conclude in B minor. Those eight bars are then repeated with a rather more cleverly chromatic harmonization, but one which ends up accomplishing much the same task. With the sonata tilting further and further toward whimsicality, if not downright levity, we then encounter the rondo finale in 6-8, D major, and marked allegro ma non troppo. The refrain theme, again, begins with a pedal or articulated drone effect in the left-hand part. We begin with the eighth note pickup on A, the dominant, dropping to the tonic D. Then the upper note in the pattern ascends by step, while the lower note stays the same, until after four ascending notes, we're hearing an octave drop of the sort we've heard several times before in this sonata. Soon after, the ascending pattern in the higher voice begins again, although the line ascends more gradually this time. Here's a simplified example of just the left hand. Above this pseudo-rustic activity, after two bars, a brief, wonderfully guileless little phrase in eighth notes appears, the first note of which begins on a pickup note tied across the bar. This is accompanied by a slower-moving part beneath it. After a two-bar gap, the phrase returns, this time extended by another phrase, actually a single measure repeated twice, still guileless and folk-like, but characterized by frequent leaps. The last four bars see these phrases repeated in a slightly embroidered version. Let's hear it that far. The folkish aura is dispelled somewhat by the transition that follows, a series of mostly rapidly ascending arpeggios in sixteenth notes, which, after twelve bars, comes to a stop on an E major chord, the dominant of A major, where we encounter our first episode. Here's the transition passage. The first episode has a delicate lilt to it, bouncing between the notes of the A major triad, with the initial motive echoed immediately in the lower voices. The second four bars constitute a more embellished version of the first four. This is followed by a little cadential figure, based on an inner voice in bars three and four of the episode, which is repeated four times before solid block chords affirm the cadence on A major.
At the end of my excerpt, you could hear just the beginning of a rather blustery retransition made up largely of a series of octave leaps, descending and ascending. The refrain then returns back in D major with a few extra ornamental gestures, and it's followed by another transition based on the opening measures of the refrain. But we're going to skip all the way to the middle section, the C section, in what is to this point an A, refrain followed by transition, B, first episode followed by retransition, A, the return of the refrain, slightly modified, and its transition, and a C section. We sort of back into this C section from the previous transition, but its starting point is reasonably clear. The dynamic level is reduced to pianissimo, and the left hand part is moved up to the treble clef range in G major. The main thematic idea we encounter here operates on two, sometimes three levels. Initially, it's a gentle ascending scale fragment doubled in thirds, which is answered by another three-note motive after an across-the-beat tie. It continues the stepwise ascent. After peaking six notes higher, the motive reverses course and descends, but only briefly, soon we're on our way up again. This idea sounds somewhat familiar because it's reminiscent to an extent of the opening figure from the refrain, also beginning with an across-the-beat tie, but descending by step rather than ascending. Beethoven now develops this three-note motive, which eventually dominates the texture, into a powerful climax, especially after the key veers into G minor. When we move to D minor, and the dynamic level has built to fortissimo, the three-note motive is now heard in octaves in the left hand, the right hand responding with offbeat descending octave leaps, ascending triads, and a three-note descending motive against it. As you could hear, these simple motives are used to generate a surprising degree of intensity, particularly unexpected given the almost naive simplicity of the earlier refrain and first episode themes. But that for Beethoven is apparently part of the game. A listener can appreciate the charm of the simple themes on the one hand, and then be all the more amazed when they, or thematic ideas related to them, can be used to generate such a powerful climax. The refrain then returns in D major, and after another transition, the first episode returns, somewhat modified as usual, and in D major rather than A major. Then there is a little transition passage based largely on the opening bars of the movement, which pauses on a dominant seventh on A. That introduces the brief and whimsical coda, 
which is, of course, all the more absurd after the dramatic intensity Beethoven had briefly summoned in the development section. The left hand is still exploiting the opening baseline figure I described earlier, while the right hand is embellishing that pattern with leaps of its own. It's quite possible that Beethoven was in a particularly good humor when he composed this piece and was enjoying the several contradictions, musical ironies, and witticisms he incorporated into it, even going beyond Haydn in some ways, as much as any of his listeners would. We're going to turn now to Beethoven's String Quintet in C major, Opus 29, also composed in 1801 and nicknamed The Storm. It's his only real string quintet, a form favored by Mozart, since the Opus 4 string quintet was actually an arrangement of the octet for winds. It's a work that has been well thought of since its completion for various reasons. One is Beethoven's skill in employing the added viola that turns the standard quartet arrangement into a quintet. A look at the score shows that Beethoven is in fact very creative in this respect. The extra voice in the middle of the texture naturally adds to the overall resonance in passages where all five instruments join together, particularly in passages using multiple stops. But Beethoven uses the added viola in a variety of ways, not just to increase the overall sonority of the ensemble, pairing it sometimes with the violins, sometimes with the other viola, and sometimes linking it to the cello below. So instead of providing one new coloristic possibility, the addition of the viola actually accounts for several. Probably the second most important reason that the quintet is singled out is the use of an adventurous new key relationship between the first and second subject in the first movement. We've seen other works where Beethoven has violated the typical late 18th century tendencies in terms of key relationships, but this instance is often seen as evidence of Beethoven's increasing desire to experiment in significant ways with those relationships, in ways which very much look ahead to practices associated with mature 19th century Romanticism. But let's start at the beginning. The first movement is in cut time and marked Allegro Maturato. The narrow-range legato melody presented in the first violin meanders around, unfolding slowly and gradually ascending as it touches first on D minor and then F major, before pausing on a dominant chord in measure 8. The accompaniment initially is fairly sparse, but the cello does echo the melody down an octave in contrary motion, breaking the pattern only at cadence points. Starting in measure 9, the melody, an octave higher, shifts to the second violin, while both violas now engage in broken chord accompaniment patterns, and violin one contributes a modest but effective countermelody high in its range. This time, the theme crescendos while unfolding, and some new accents are introduced on the fourth beat of the measure before the cadences on D minor and F major. Here are the first 16 measures. Thank you. 
At the end of my excerpt, you heard the beginning of the modulatory transition, based initially on a stream of triplets in thirds and sixths between first and second violins. After the triplets have run their course, a variant of the opening bars of the first subject makes its way throughout the texture as the tonality gradually shifts to A minor. There, a brief but expressive new phrase is introduced by violin one, which leads to a series of ascending staccato arpeggios traded back and forth between viola one, violin one, and later cello, which peak an octave and a half higher and then descend poignantly down a fourth with a three-note motive. After 16 measures, the transition comes to a stop on the dominant of A minor. Here is the entire transition. The fact that this transition modulates to A minor is hardly remarkable. It's a closely related key, and it wouldn't be at all unusual for Beethoven to visit it on the way to the normal second subject key, in this case G major. But as you'll hear in a minute, when the second subject actually arrives, it's not in G major, it's in A major. The relationship between the original tonic key of C major and A major is definitely not that of a closely related key. It's what is sometimes called a chromatic mediant relationship, meaning, first of all, that the two tonal centers are separated by a third, in this case a minor third, and the chromatic part of the label means that they're not in the same key. There's no key that naturally includes both a C major chord and an A major chord. The relationship between chords a third apart had, for most composers in the 18th century, been considered a weaker relationship than chords that are a fourth or a fifth apart, or even a second apart. But now, as we begin to move into the 19th century, chords or tonal centers that are a third apart, especially those that are chromatic to each other, are seen as a new expressive alternative because at this point they are still fairly rare, although certainly not unheard of, they were thought to be more colorful, sometimes even considered more sensuous than more conventional relationships between chords or tonal centers. So Beethoven is being a little experimental here, although it must be admitted that it's a fairly conservative sort of experiment, because he does not juxtapose the two tonal centers directly going from C major directly to A major, which would presumably have a little more novelty value, but he softens the blow by making it more gradual. First he modulates to A minor, and then simply flips the switch, and A minor becomes A major. Here are the last few measures of the transition going into the second subject.
It's a sweetly lyrical theme presented in parallel thirds by the two violins, a little Schubertian before Schubert. The first two full bars, played pianissimo, are the most telling. The descending motive is answered right away by the first viola, and it's replicated down a step for measures three and four, before then ascending chromatically near the end of the eight-bar statement. The same two measures dominate the next eight bars. They're repeated sequentially and then distributed throughout the texture as the tonality fluctuates, moving first to A minor and then briefly to F major and even E minor. After a new linking phrase takes us to A minor, the closing section begins, dominated once again by triplet figures, somewhat related to those from the modulatory transition, but with a new chromatically descending tail. You heard just a little bit of this at the end of my excerpt. We stay in A minor for the rest of the exposition, but in the Coedetta, we hear again the opening bars of the first subject. They appear first in sixths between second violin and first viola, echoed up a fifth by first violin, in A major again, although only briefly before returning to A minor. Here's the end of the closing section going into the Coedetta and to the end of the exposition and the beginning of the repeat. Naturally, points of interest in both the development section and recapitulation, but we're going to move on now to take a quick look at the other movements. The slow movement in F major 3-4 time and marked Adagio Molto Espressivo boasts a wonderfully lyrical first subject. It unfolds in two four-bar phrases, each featuring its own distinctive ideas but linking together beautifully. The initial eight bars are followed by an ornamented version of the last four bars, with first violin moving up an octave. Here are the first 12 measures. We slide unobtrusively into the second subject, which is notable for the introduction of pulsating sixteenth notes in the second viola, and a distinctive upbeat five-note motive in second violin and first viola, doubled in thirds by the cello, and answered by the first violin with rather ethereal-sounding descending triads, somewhat reminiscent of bar five of the first subject. Thank you. 
As you heard, the five-note motive is cut down to a four-note motive and shows up eventually in every part. Beethoven is on the move tonally as well, touching very briefly on B-flat, E-flat, and even A-flat and C minor before scurrying back to the shelter of C major and the start of the closing section. We, however, are going to jump to the development section, where Beethoven chooses to largely ignore both his first and second subjects and instead introduce and develop a distinctive new theme, presented in the first violin, characterized by phrases featuring initial octave leaps, long descending lines in dotted note rhythms, and groups of repeated 32nd notes in the accompaniment, the entrances staggered between the lower strings. This new idea fades from use after a few measures, replaced by broadly arching eighth note arpeggios in the first violin, as we make our way from C major to D minor. Beethoven then introduces another somewhat new idea based on an ascending group of stepwise sixteenths, although this one does owe a debt to the first subject in terms of contour and the use of dotted rhythms. This final part of the development section continues to explore new tonal areas, partially through a circle of fifths progression, even dropping in to A-flat major, where there's even a false return of the first subject in that key. But at the last minute, Beethoven directs us back to a dominant chord on C, which in turn delivers us back to the original tonic of F major and the recapitulation begins, this time with the second violin exploiting multiple stop pizzicatos in the accompaniment. The new idea from the development section is trotted out again in the coda at the end of the recapitulation for a few measures, but 12 measures before the end, the first subject returns once more and crescendos into something of a climax, only to die away as the movement ends quietly with a series of delicate pizzicato eighth notes. The third movement, a scherzo in C major in 3-4 and marked allegro, 
begins very much in the mode of a good-natured frolic, its main thematic idea consisting of a triadic arpeggio taking various forms in various octaves. Here are the first eight bars repeated. Although the triadic motive continues to make its presence felt, the second, much longer part of the scherzo section introduces some new stepwise ideas, flirts with new tonal areas, and injects a little mock drama into the proceedings. The trio, which starts in F major, puts a more expansive spin on the triadic motives of the scherzo, and also introduces a new coquettish little motive consisting of a staccato descending chromatic line. But it is more remarkable for its opening plunge into A flat major in the second longer part. This is another example of a chromatic mediant relationship, and it does come as something of a surprise. But Beethoven doesn't luxuriate in this new unexpected key for long, almost immediately beginning a long and somewhat painful return to F major. The finale, in 6-8, Mark Presto, and back in C major, establishes its stormy credentials right from the beginning, with its accented tremolo figures beneath flitting violin lines. Still, it's hard to take this particular storm too seriously, even when the key is bumped up to D minor a few measures later. Soon after that, we're in F major, and the 16th note flurries are passed down to the cello while the first violin tosses off some quick ascending arpeggios, presumably in emulation of lightning strikes. Let's hear it that far.
At the end of my excerpt, you heard the beginning of the modulatory transition. It eventually takes us through various keys, finally settling on D major for a while. We expect that to be a setup for G major, the expected second subject key. But instead, after the texture thins to a series of throbbing eighth notes on D, the D is bumped up to E flat, which we soon hear as the dominant of A flat major. And before we know it, we're in the second subject in the key of A flat, another unexpected tonal development. Here's the last part of the transition and the unexpected introduction of A flat for the second subject. But unorthodox key relationships are not the only unusual things about this movement. The storm theme returns in the development section, but soon it is joined by other new ideas based on strong dotted rhythms and across the bar ties, not in 6-8, but juxtaposed in 2-4 time. The result seems almost chaotic at first, but eventually the ear takes it all in and order seems restored. Here's the first part of the development section. But just when this juxtaposition of alien themes starts to make sense, Beethoven introduces a new one, in A major. It's a very quiet and rather genteel minuet, which seems, naturally, to make no sense at all in this context. The minuet finally pauses on the dominant chord, and then the recapitulation begins. It's initially in F major, but it eventually straightens itself out, and we're back in C major. It's by no means an exact copy of the exposition, but all the important component parts are present, and as a sort of link to the coda, even our minuet makes a return appearance. 
before the opening storm theme makes its final return to take us to the concluding cadence. This string quintet is a remarkable work in a number of ways, and several commentators have rightfully complained that it isn't performed as much as it deserves to be. For our next episode, we'll step back just a bit chronologically to 1800 and take a look at Beethoven's ballet, The Creatures of Prometheus. <laughs> 